Hey everybody, welcome back to Killer Serials. I'm Tony Jones. Ryan Parker. And we are a couple dudes with PhDs in theology who like uh, good TV. So we watch, we talk, and occasionally we bring on highly vaunted guests as we, <laughs> as we are today. Rock stars, if you will. Just John to... Booker. John's been with us before. John, we talked about, uh, what did we talk about the last time you were on? People versus O.J. Simpson. That's right. People versus O.J. Uh, this this week we're going to talk about Stranger Things. We'll say more about that in a minute. But uh, John is uh, has become a good friend, lives here in L.A., a uh, very talented writer and cultural critic, I would say, writes a lot about film and television um, for L.A. screenwriter. Also has kind of a, a platform, John, what would you call multimedia platform of telling a better story? Yeah. Um, where you, you travel around and, and give talks and um, write about the importance of story. And uh, as the title says, telling a better story, you were just in Guatemala. I was, yeah. I got to meet with the uh, Minister of Education, the Minister of Defense, and we talked about uh, telling a better story in the country of Guatemala. That's awesome. So we're we're glad to have you back, and I know that you like we uh, are uh, are a big fan of Stranger Things on Netflix, um, which seemed to be the runaway hit of the summer. I think we're gonna, you know, we, we've watched all the episodes, like most of our listeners probably have, and so rather than do what we usually do, which is kind of a uh, episode by episode breakdown. We're going to kind of talk about the series as a whole, and I think Tony wants to focus on the last episode in particular. But um, uh, kind of a very, you know, for those people who are listening who may not have uh, seen the show, you probably need to press pause on this and go watch it yeah. and then come back. But, you know, just kind of a quick summary is it's a very Spielbergian story set in the 80s and the suburbs uh, about a group of friends who. Uh, start to see and experience some kind of supernatural um, events in their small town, which may or may not be related to this kind of government scientific yeah. experiments going on nearby. John, I want to ask you about this because I read some... Well, first of all, I want to say this. The early buzz about the show seemed to be really about the 1980s nostalgia, yeah. which for people like me, I'm 48 years old, I mean, this the this show is set in the early '80s, and like the font on the on the opening credits and the the all the music is done with these you know real 1980s synthesizer type vibe. So that was the early buzz of the show. It seemed wasn't really so much about the story. It was about oh my gosh, if you grew up in the early '80s, you got to watch this, which I take as kind of a brilliant marketing hook for <laughs> for a show you know for a show on netflix that's just trying to rise above the noise of all the other stuff that's constantly being released on you know multiple different uh channels hell even on their own channel <laughs> yeah so john what, what i want to ask you about the story but first what do you yeah. think about that kind of they really they, they didn't hold anything back on that 80s nostalgia vibe 
Yeah, they, they really tapped into something there. And it's interesting. Um, part of my work in story is actually looking at the science of how story affects the brain. And there is a reward uh, that is given uh, uh, chemically to the brain when we identify with something or when we see something that we uh, recognize. When we see a face, we recognize. When we hear a story, we recognize. And so they had automatically set the audience up, you know, especially people like us who, who grew up in that era, they had set the audience up to um, be able to see these fonts, see these stories, even see uh, actors like Winona Ryder that we haven't, you know, seen in the the, the culture in some time, and automatically uh, this this payload of chemicals hits our brain, and we say, "Ah, this is for me. I recognize these people. I recognize these fonts. I recognize these stories." And so, from a story perspective. Um, you know, they they really did something smart where uh, people unconsciously and subconsciously, when they see the show, when they see all the aesthetics of the show, they automatically feel like they're part of some sort of inside club, that this is this is specifically made for them. I, I get that. And I I had that feeling. But here's what I also saw in the early press about the show was... People were like, the story's not that great. Yeah. You know, that was, there was some, it was. Yeah, there was the, there was immediate pushback with people. You know, I I mentioned earlier Spielbergian and there was, there are all these, and you know, you don't know whether people are being contrary or whether there's this, a genuine criticism here, but that they miss what Spielberg got in story. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, what's interesting there is we live in this golden age of television that we have these extremely complex, uh, very nuanced stories. You know, we we live in an age that we're all trying to replicate the masterful storytelling of The Wire, you know, and shows like that. Well, one thing that I think they actually got right is, you know, Spielberg tells nuanced stories, but his stories are very simple. E.T. is just a story about trying to get this alien back home. And in some sense, you know, Stranger Things is just a story about some kids trying to bring back their friend. Um, so I, I think, you know, part of the uh, complaints are, are a little unfounded because um, from a story perspective, it really is a very simple story that you would find in the 1980s, um, you know, of some kids just trying to get their friend back. There's a very clear external goal. There's a very clear, uh, you know, objective that these characters are trying to accomplish and everybody sort of has this same goal of of trying to get the kid back. So I I think, you know, I understand some of the criticism, but I think some of it was actually a little unfounded. John, is it, is it, um, am I going to get run out of Hollywood if I say that Spielberg shouldn't be held up as this kind of uh, (laughs) idol of storytelling? Like there's, I mean, there's so much about his movies that they all hold up because I think it's it's all those other elements that go into crafting a film yeah. that make them so memorable. Yeah. Like, it's a very simple story, but it's laid on with al- almost always perfect casting, right? Incredible Absolutely. production design, yeah. the, you know, timeless music, right? John Williams, the whole bit. Like, it, so, I, you know, when you look at something like Stranger Things, I think they get that too, which is... The story is important, but you got to nail all this other stuff along with it. 
Well, you know, Flannery O'Connor once said that everybody seems to know what a story is until they sit down to write one. Um, And and I think that speaks to when we use this term story and we say something is good storytelling, that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And, you know, for some people, that means the actual narrative of setups and payoffs. For some people, it means, wow, that's really interesting characters and interesting scenarios. And so I think part of the problem is we have this really general term of, of story and storytelling that we we come at from different perspectives and we come at from different angles. And what that means to me may be different than what that means to you. So to say Spielberg, you know, is not the best storyteller, I think there's a case that can be made for that. Uh, it just depends on what you mean by storytelling. And yes, sure. you will be run out of Hollywood for saying that, but yeah. it doesn't mean that you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, it, I, we probably all three of us can agree that just because a story is simple doesn't mean a story is bad, right. you know, or, or not uh, sophisticated because – I mean, really, you can look at some of the great stories in history, and they're not particularly complicated plot-wise. They're just told extraordinarily well. And I think that's what I hear you both saying, is like what Spielberg's the master at is telling a story very well. And so that includes cinematography, casting, direction, and everything like that. It's not just about how complex is the plot. Tony, you're a, you couldn't be more correct about that because I think what we fail to recognize is sometimes there's a difference between story creating and storytelling. And I think Spielberg is a master storyteller. I don't know that he's a master story creator as far as, you know, the person that actually comes up with the narrative design and, and you know, crafts all that. And I think this is what may be the criticism for Stranger Things is I think people say or people believe it's master storytelling. It may not be master story creating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, let's let's talk a little bit um, before we get to the story itself about the casting, because I think one thing that's, you know, Millie Bobby Brown has become a superstar (laughs) this summer by being on a Netflix show. I mean, first of all, we have to just step back and think of the cultural moment that we're in. Mm. You know what I'm saying? That like a, a pre a, a child actress is becomes a superstar by being on a streaming service that didn't even exist 10 years ago. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and now yeah. she's like rocking it on. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people who who asked me like, hey, did you see when Eleven rapped on uh, Kimmel or what or on what, no <laughs> and last Fallon. and Fallon and last night she was on Colbert <laughs> and, and they did a bit where she you know um, like reads his mind and he plays Matthew Modine's character. It, it's really it, it's that's amazing, but she is incredible in that. Mm-hmm. But I want to say that. David Harbour, who plays police chief Jim Hopper, makes the show, I think. I think he's the moral backbone of the show. Um, and that's, that's honestly, whenever he came onto the screen, I was happy because I'm like, something interesting is going to happen. I want to see how Chief Hopper deals with what's going on in the show. What did you guys think about the different casting and the different uh, actors? 
Well, I think the casting is brilliant, and I think casting younger actors to play younger characters is a brilliant decision. And I'm being I'm being kind of facetious here because a lot of shows with younger kids skew older in their casting. Well, it's funny, Ryan, because for those of us who grew up in the 80s, we grew up going to a lot of movies where there were people in their 20s playing high school kids. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So, and I think it's one of the hardest things to do, too. I can't remember who said this, but it was, uh, I was in a lecture once about casting, and the person said, whoever, I mean, they said the name, and I, I could pull this up, but whoever cast the actors for Harry Potter deserves a lifetime achievement award <laughs> because what vision to, to look at these kids way back in, you know, the late nineties and realize that you've got to carry a franchise with these kids mm. and they do, and they do all the way through They They do good, solid work. And so I think you've got really talented kids here. So for me, it was that made the most of it because from, you know, from 11 to Dustin, I thought it was great. Well, and, and I think, it's interesting that even minor characters have, have have produced great memes. You know, Shannon Purser that plays Barbara on the show. Barb. There, there, yeah, there's an entire uh, segment of the culture that more identifies with Barb than any other character on that show. <laughs> and I think that's telling because, you know, it's it's it shows the details of this show were so well thought out. The casting is so good, even in the details uh, that, you know, we, we were creating internet memes around Barb. Yeah. And I'll tell you another character that I really liked, um, and stranger things was the boyfriend. Um, it's the actor's name's Joe, uh, Joe Keery and he plays Steve Harrington, right? So he's, he broke for me, he broke out in a, in an indie film this year called Henry Gamble's birthday party. And we got to interview him. The second I saw him in that film, I was like, this kid's going to be a star. And then he shows up in Stranger Things. And I think he steals almost every scene that he's in. Mm. And and he actually undergoes a metamorphosis that you don't often see characters believably pull off. And his is, yeah. Right? He goes from being a villain. And when he shows up in those last couple scenes, you think this guy's still going to be a villain. But he... He's gone through some kind of meta metanoia experience where he's like turned on his old friends and circled back and and he becomes a virtuous figure and a you just don't often see that b I really didn't expect that i and c like I say, I think often characters fail at at trying to pull off a repentance kind of move like that but I think it was believable. I thought he pulled it off. Yeah. yeah. Me too. Me too. Strong character. You know, just even the name, Steve Harrington. I mean, that sounds like an 80s <laughs> villain, you know? It's straight yeah. out of a John Hughes movie, you know, that uh, the the guy that Molly Ringwald loves is named Steve Harrington. Yeah. Let me ask you this. One thing, one, one little plot twist, you know, or, or character development piece that I thought they could have developed a little better although i already confess that uh, chief hopper is my favorite character in the show i think he's not as skeptical about i mean he 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 pretty 
quickly flips from being skeptical of this supernatural stuff that's happening to being a true believer. And I realize a lot of stuff happens to him in a short amount of time. And we've also got this backstory that his own daughter died, although at that point in the series we don't know why or how she died. I mean, there's even a little bit of a question if she was also abducted. Mm. Um, yeah. But I don't know. I thought maybe there were, there could have been a little more development about this guy becoming, um, you know, a believer because in kind of the X Files way, he, you know, he's David Duchovny's character. He he quickly becomes the guy who believes these conspiracy theories, and he's going to break into this secret government uh, center. Which also, by the way, the, the, this town borders this secret government center with like a big fence with razor wire around it. And it's as though nobody's ever wondered what goes on in there. So that was a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Hopper, maybe check for your daughter behind the razor wire fence. <laughs> yeah. um, Even though they moved to the city. <laughs> let me ask you this. Do you think Winona Ryder's hysterionics as Joyce, the, the mother of the missing son was too much or did you believe it as it went on i've i felt like at times it it got to be a little too much we kept hitting the same emotional note there and you know winona Ryder's really good at delivering that hysteric but after a while we we want to see some different notes uh rather than just this high c you know that uh that she's giving us i i don't want to be uh that guy but like doesn't her performance carry weight because of her real life. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Tony? Yeah. <laughs> well, for like sure. every time she, every time she's in the supermarket, I'm like, uh oh. <laughs> Ryan, you are so that guy. I mean, I'm doing it. And then let's ju- we just got to say, I mean, talk about 80s nostalgia. It's not just Winona Ryder, but Matthew Modine. Are you kidding me? Wow. I mean, yeah. how. Yeah creepy is that guy this is like you go onto his imdb you know and and what you want to know the first thing that comes up which just couldn't be more beautiful 1982 abc after school specials wow he's in a bunch of them wow (laughs) yes (laughs) that's awesome how freaking perfect is that and then he's in full metal jacket and he kind of comes into his own but he's been i mean you know, like, where has he been for the last years? And but he's so creepy as this guy. He's Dr. Martin Brenner. Is there a better harsh German name than he's Dr. Also, Martin Brenner? He's yeah. also apparently just wrapped a film called The Heyday of the Insensitive Bastards. <laughs> so, so there I, you go. There was just a lot going, a lot of good stuff. Well, let's, let's talk about the story. I mean... John, that's your yeah. that's that's your baby, man. What yeah. what's your take on the the story arc of the first season? And yeah. let me ask you this: I want to ask you. Here was my question about the overall story. These guys, the Duffer Brothers, these mysterious Duffer Brothers, about which you can find very little on Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. They and they land this deal. It's amazing. Yeah. They land this deal, and they ended season one after these eight episodes, not knowing if they would get season two how do you write a story mm-hmm. that might be just a standalone you know a standalone eight story arc that just might live on netflix 
in perpetuity and never have another season. So you, you want to wrap up loose ends, but you also want to leave it open that you might get season two and you're yeah. going to have to take these characters somewhere new in the next season. That's, that, I, that seems to me an extraordinary challenge. It is a, a great challenge. And, you know, we've seen different shows have varying levels of success at doing that. Um, I, I personally, and I'm probably alone in this, but I would have loved to have seen this just been a one-off show uh, that, that just ran one season and that be it. Because I feel like no matter what they do in season two, it's going to be difficult to recapture the zeitgeist of, of this first uh, season. Now, I do think uh, you, you have to give the audience a level of satisfaction with the main uh, plot line, which of course was uh, finding Will Byers and bringing Will Byers back. And because they accomplished that, we as an audience look at the story and we say, okay, they gave us an answer. We see that the hero, and for all practical purposes, the hero in this this journey is Mike Wheeler. Um, Mike is, is kind of the kid that is leading the charge. And so Mike, you know, is able to find and bring back Will Byers with the help of all these other characters. So the, the key narrative here is, is fulfilled. However, uh, what you want to do is leave plenty of open room with other characters, which while... Um, we and I agree with you about Chief Hopper. I loved Chief Hop, Chief Hopper, but I think they leave <clears throat> excuse me plenty of room for Chief Hopper's character to play an even greater role and have an even larger arc in the second season. Part of the reason I think they do this is these kids, even if they film this immediately, these kids are at an age. These kids are going to grow up quick. They're not going to have ten seasons of Stranger Things without introducing new kids. Yeah. Uh, or, or changing the way the show works. I think uh, they're, they're setting us up to really explore, uh, you know, Chief Hopper's story and some of the more minor, you know, characters uh, will, will perhaps come to light. It's just, you know, the case we're going to run um, a, a show multiple seasons that have young kids in it. Those kids are going to grow up and you've got to kind of change the, the arc of the show. I also think they were smart to leave... Matthew Modine's character as potential um, antagonist for the second season. Uh, I don't think we've seen the last of, of Matthew Modine in this show. I think uh, he will continue to play a major role. Um, but as far as the story goes, again, I feel like they really did a good job with the storytelling this, this first season. Um, my biggest complaint, I, I would say, is uh, there were almost too many characters to, to have to follow. Um, sometimes I feel like, you know, the, the character of, of Lucas, the African-American uh, kid, I, I so appreciate the diversity in this group of kids, but sometimes I felt like, wow, we've, we've, we've almost structured what would be, what look good on paper as opposed to what audiences can follow well over yeah. the course uh, yeah, of the story. Yeah, I, I kind of found... Uh, in the same way you said about Winona Ryder, I, uh, her character Joyce, I found Lucas's character a little bit of Johnny One Note. You know, mm -hmm. he was always I I don't believe Eleven, and all, you know, you guys are. It, it was he was always angry. Yeah, and yeah. 
always upset with his buddies and always wanted to go off and do it alone. And, you know, yeah. in some ways kind of played a bit of a straw man character, I thought. Yeah, I agree. Really agree. And even Nancy, you know, Nancy Wheeler's character. Um, I, I, I think there's room there for the future of her character, but in some sense, I think she was more meant to set up the character of Steve than she was to have her own interesting story arc. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they had potential there, but again, we've just got so many characters that we're trying to follow and, and see what happens to and, and have an arc that um, I think, honestly, from a storytelling perspective, I could have dealt with maybe cutting, you know, one or two of the characters. One of the things that happened that kind of is a recurring thing um, it, as the course of the season, uh, the first season goes on, is this question of lying. And, you know, it's it, one of the fascinating things, of course, is that Eleven is a little bit like a robot. I mean, there, it's not unlike science fiction movies where a robot comes into a relationship with a human being and has to learn what it means to be human. Mm. Because Eleven doesn't even know how to speak when she first comes out of, of kind of the government quarantine thing. Mm. And she learns how to be human from these three boys, but particularly from Mike Wheeler as she's living in his basement. And one of the things that comes up, you know, is friends don't lie. Mm. And she she sees the boys lying to each other, to their parents or whatever. And then she lies briefly to them about, you know, when she leads them in circles um, and they end up at the school bus and uh, she, you know, throws Lucas, um, knocks Lucas unconscious by throwing him uh, across um, uh, some grass and into a thing. And, then later she kind of repents of that and she realizes friend, you know, she says friends don't lie. And so she starts to come clean with them in the last couple episodes. I thought that was an interesting kind of moral quandary that the creators of the show put in this little trio of these three young boys, because of course they've all, all been told, you don't, don't lie, never lie. Lying is bad. And yet the, the only way they're able to make this whole thing work is to lie. And then, Eleven kind of plops down in the middle of their little society and is trying to make, come to terms with this question of do I lie in order to help my friends and, and, and keep them safe or do I come clean with them about how the bad men live in this, in, in this building and are out to get us all. And Tony, I think you've hit on the major theme of the show, which is the truth at what cost. To me, that's the major theme of the show is the truth at what cost. And we see that played out on a macro level. We see that played out on a micro level. Yeah. And then I, I wanted to circle back to, um, and this is something Ryan and I have talked about on other shows before too. And it, it's it's the role of that, that a scapegoat plays. Mm -hmm. And it, it's kind of a combination of a scapegoat and somebody who's willing to sacrifice themselves for the other. And what I thought was, you know, I'd, I'd been kind of attuned to this, oh, it's kind of a simple storyline and things like that. But what I thought was interesting is in the final episode, two different characters sacrifice themselves for the sake of others. Mm. And one is very obvious and one is not obvious. And I think that's what's going to be explored in season two, quite honestly. So Eleven, Eleven obviously sacrifices herself by throwing herself at the monster after saying goodbye to Mike 
and disappears along with the monster. And we think, oh, she's dead. She's gone. This is a very common trope in a lot of stories is that, you know, the somebody, uh, some character everyone loves dies at the end. And we, we all love her more, even though we're going to miss her. And then we actually get a little hint that maybe she's alive because Chief Hopper's leaving Egos in a box in the woods. And maybe she's still alive, which, uh-huh. you know. What I think is interesting, what I thought was even more interesting is Chief Hopper. There's some there's some hidden stuff that happens in the last couple episodes. He he's it seems like he cuts a deal with Dr. Brenner in the secret government facility. And because he gets himself and Joyce out, he won't tell Joyce what happened. And then we're in the hospital after, you know, after Will has come back and there's the big reunion and everything. Chief Hopper walks out. He lights a cigarette. A black car drives up next to him. Guys in suits get out, open the back door. He snuffs out his cigarette after one drag, climbs in the back, and off he goes. So he goes willingly with these government guys. Like, he's cut... He's cut some kind of a deal, and, and it reminded me of Narnia. It reminded me of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Aslan cuts a side deal to get Edmund off. So he basically ransoms him. He, 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 he ransoms himself in, in Edmund's place. It's a very common theological theme. goes back to the early church called the Ransom Captive Theory of the Atonement, that Jesus that God basically substituted Jesus for humankind, rescued humankind from Satan, and Jesus took humankind's place as, a, as the captive. I think there's something happening with Chief Hopper in that. And, and I think that's what was hidden in the last episode. And I think that's what we're going to see more of is what did G- Jim Hopper give up in order to rescue Will? What did he? What secret deal did he cut that cost him something? Yeah, I think that whole. I mean, I think that analogy holds up, but it's different than a scapegoat, right? John, you should know Tony loves a scapegoat. That's uh, <laughs> more than that because, as you pointed out, these are self sacrifices, right? And this is a choice that they take on themselves. It's not put on them. So eleven makes this very. Uh, self-sacrificial choice to save her friends, um, which she comes to realize uh, as part of her character, it's growing to realize what this means to be a person. There's the potential for your comparison to bear out in the future if this is what Hopper's doing. We can't know that at the moment, but uh, getting in that car is something that I think probably came as a shock to a lot of viewers. I don't know about you, John. Yeah, definitely. So I I do want to run back for a second on the idea of the scapegoat because um, from a story perspective, there is um, there's this Greek term, uh, the pharmakos, uh, P-H-A-R-M-A-K-O-S. And uh, it, it was popu- popular in Greek mythology and popular uh, in, in stories told uh, during shortly after the time of the Greeks. Um, and the pharmakos was uh, someone who is sacrificed for the betterment of society and oftentimes in... Um, Mythology, we have this character that is is sacrificed for the good of society, who is a character that's thrown into a volcano or or you know some uh, some other tragedy has befallen them, but they do willingly give themselves uh, for it. We we even see it um, 
throughout, you know, Mayan and Aztec mythology, this idea of a pharmacos. So I, I too, am interested in the idea of scapegoats as they uh, come into play with mythology. Uh, one thing, I, I, I'm going to take it too far here. So are you guys ready for me to take it too far? Blow yeah. it up, baby. All right. <laughs> so 11 is the Christ figure. Yep. Mike is Simon Peter. Caleb is doubting Thomas. Dustin or I'm sorry, Lucas is doubting Thomas. Dustin is John. I, I really think we have <laughs> Christ and the disciples because we, we have this Christ figure that comes from somewhere else under this otherworldly figure who comes to dwell among these, these kind of silly guys. Um, and I, I think we can't miss that even if it's not deliberate on an unconscious level, this story of, of um, a, a otherworldly being coming to live among us who, who has abilities and gifts uh, that, that they're there to help us. Um, man, I mean, how can we not feel like that, that those sorts of stories, you know, have some sort of origin place? John, I, I think I don't, I don't question your kind of archetypal casting at all. I think it's very much that and especially when you think 11 at the end you know as a viewer you're watching the last episode and you're thinking 11 is the only character i want to survive yes because 11 des- she's done nothing wrong she's she is the sinless innocent victim she's the one who should get to survive and and realize what real life is like she should be able to eat a steak Matrix, uh, you know, Matrix throwback. <laughs> she should be able all to the, fall in all love. The you know, what? she should be able. She, yeah, she should be able to fall in love. She should. She should understand joy and sorrow. And yet, she's the one whose life gets snuffed out. Yeah. And and even that uh, again, I I don't think it's too much. I don't think you're overplaying that kind of messianic imagery because I I really think it is there. I think you're exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I do too, and I, I think there's a reason stories like this um, resonate so strongly with people, especially in this last episode, as you mentioned. Um, we, we just have all these storylines sort of come together to communicate this very human, universal, almost cosmic story that seems to draw us regardless of culture or race or anything else. And I think we have to pay attention to that To that, as people who think beyond the here and the now, we have to pay attention to stories that seem to draw people on such a level as this show has when they have these sorts of elements. I, I really appreciate listening to, I've been kind of sitting back and listening to you guys because I feel like there, there are many ways in which folks who have a religious or theological background or an inclination to engage content from that perspective, you can do it lazy uh, or you can do it with a bit of uh, integrity and insight. And I think both of you guys do that. To say there are a lot of people who might hear us say 11 is a Christ figure and just turn it off, right? I'm not going to listen to this. (laughs) But, But this is such a defining story for Western culture and and John, you talked before the show about, uh, you know, the Duffer brothers are from Chapman. We're obviously not going to, you know, kind of put these certain beliefs on them without ever having uh, spoken with them. But, you know, there is a religious background to that environment. Um, it's not completely ludicrous to say that 
this is something these guys might have brought to the story consciously or subconsciously. And so to begin to kind of look at this from that angle, I don't think it does a disservice to the story. I wonder though, if we can, can we take it a step further or can we say, you know, it may or may not be that one of the things that I was intrigued by in stranger things was this, the duality between the world on top and the world on bottom. Mm. And that seemed to me to be a very, I don't know, it worked as a, oh, it's creepy, it's effective, the production design was great, you know, it, it really kind of sucked me in. But it was also kind of too dualistic and too simple. Mm, mm. Um, and I, I don't know what you guys made of that element to the show. I, I personally saw, you know, John's already mentioned kind of some ancient mythological notes in this show. And I think there is kind of the, you know, crossing the river sticks, and there's a whole nother society on the other side. I, I found it a little bit odd that it was in some way spiritual, like it's another dimension or something, but really it's just the place where this monster lives. And somehow, you know, the monster, um, because of Eleven, the monster is able to now cross between the two worlds. It was a little underdeveloped, I thought, the, what the upside down was all about. But and it was, you know, it's interesting that who do they, who do the boys go to for an explanation of ba- basically yeah. everything is yeah. their middle school science teacher, which I thought is pretty funny. Like he, <laughs> he can explain everything to them, you know, like sensory deprivation tank. Yes, I can tell you how much salt to put in the water. You know, Smart, <laughs> smartest middle school science teacher ever. I mean, he was kind of great. He was kind of great. You know, I, I thought. I wonder if he's cooking meth on the side. <laughs> They're also, also, I think, you know, in some ways, um, what's great about Stranger Things is also, I think, its weakness, just like too many characters. We also, I think, had too many competing mythological ideas because we also have this very Jungian uh, meets Freudian idea of of this other dimension where we access this other dimension through and, and I hope this is okay to say on your podcast but through this very vaginal portal uh that uh, even even physically resembles kind of a vaginal portal um and it's the so it's mother, like it's like Pan's labyrinth yeah yeah it's the the mother Joyce Byers who is able to to get the the kid back and so there's there or, or never gives up hope it's this mother figure there's some really interesting uh, kind of um, Jungian ideas clashing with Freudian ideas about uh, our our unconscious and a collective unconscious that is drawing us back to the original mother. And so, you know, there's there's so many competing mythological ideas uh, in the show that I think sometimes they may be stepping on their own feet a little bit. To, to wrap up, it's interesting you say that. I think about... It's a little messy, maybe too many competing kind of themes going on um, on that. And I think, you know, and, and I don't think that's unconnected from your your li- like little desire that maybe they just would have let it be a standalone eight episode series and then just let it live like yeah. that and not feel like they had to go to season two. Although I don't know how, if you're a show creator, you're like, yeah, no thanks. <laughs> we, don't want we had the hit of the summer, but we're good. Because, but I mean, how I don't need more us, money. Yeah. How many of us wish they would not have made sequels to The Matrix? Right. Which was similarly a movie that had so many theological and mythological themes and so, like you say 
I mean, Jungian themes in in the Matrix, and and yet it was like they couldn't unravel those knots in in the second and third movies, and yeah. uh, you know, so. Uh, let's let's hope Stranger Things continues to tell a fairly simple story with really great casting. Or, or as John says, a better story. Yes. Or a better, yeah. Yes. Story. There you go. That's all I'm doing is just trying to promote good people's work. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. Well, John, thanks a million for being on that, this episode. Uh, you really, you all, every time you come on, I mean, what I love so much is how much you agree with Ryan and me. So that makes it. Great. <laughs> Hey, hey, real quick, Tony, John, what a, if you want to give a quick promotion for anything you're working on right now and then maybe tell us something we need to be looking out for in the fall, I know what you're going to say. We're going yeah, yeah. to have you back because uh, Tony, Tony and I are going to start watching it in how many days? I think it's like yep. 17 days. October 2nd. Man. There you go, baby. Um, be watching uh, Westworld, I think, is going to be the theological and spiritual show to discuss this fall. Uh, I'm going to be co-hosting a podcast called Watching Westworld, where we're going to be uh, looking at that. I'm going to be uh, writing some things. Uh, I'm talking to HBO right now about uh, some things I'm going to do with them. Um, also, I am really fascinated by virtual reality right now. So I have a book coming out next year called Storytelling for Virtual Reality. And I think it's really important that uh, if you have listeners that are people of faith, I think it's really important that we're in early on these discussions about emerging technologies so that we can speak into the ethics of, of how these technologies are going to affect what it means to be a human being on this planet. So really appreciate you guys having me on. It's always so fun to talk to you. Thanks, Thank man. You. Hey, everybody. Uh, Thanks for listening to Killer Serials, and uh, we will be back at you very soon. Bye-bye. This is Hawkins. I don't know the worst thing that's ever happened here in the four years I've been working here. was when an owl attacked Eleanor Gillespie's head because it thought that her hair was a nest. out of a hundred times kid goes missing the kid is with a parent or a relative what about the other time what you said 99 out of a hundred what about the other time the one
saw something that he shouldn't have. 